Hello and welcome to Irish History Walks. My name is Patrick Walsh and I live in Ireland, more specifically Wicklow. In this series of podcasts, I'll be exploring the history of Wicklow and wherever else is within driving distance and not too far away, so Dublin, Wexford, Kildare. I'll be exploring some of our lesser known history that could be hidden right on your doorstep. So without further ado, let's explore the Tinnakili granite quarry near Ockram. Once again, before we start, I'd like to point out that I am not a historian, so this podcast should not be used as an academic reference. Whilst I strive to make my podcasts as historically accurate as possible, the making of this podcast is as much a learning process for me as it is anybody else, so get in touch if I get anything wrong. Ockram is famous for its granite and is often referred to as the Granite City. The Granite Village would be far more appropriate, although, let's face it, it doesn't quite have that gravitas. This is due to the large number of local buildings constructed using local granite and the proximity of the quarry, of course. Granite was quarried extensively in the townland of Tinnakili from the 1840s right until 1952. In 1934, a consignment of 450 tonnes of cut granite was exported for the foundations of the Liverpool Cathedral. That's the really big old one, if you are wondering. Not the Liverpool Metropolitan Cathedral, built in the 60s. It was hoped that Tinnakili would obtain the full contract for the building, but due to a trade dispute at Liverpool docks, granite of a lesser quality from Devon was used. A fine example of Tinnakili granite can be seen at Temple Rainey Catholic Church in Arklow, which is a bit out of town on the R772. Tinnakili granite was also used in the Shannon hydroelectric scheme in the 1920s at Ardna Crusher. The state geologists came to Ockram to test the local rock and discovered it was ideal for the job, as it was porous yet waterproof, which seems like a contradiction, I know. The Customs House in Dublin contains some tinnikili granite, even the House of Lords in London, so stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Not quite sure where that sudden indignation came from. Closer to Ockram, you have the ruins of the old flour mill, cottages, etc. I've even got a couple of granite gateposts, which must have come from there. Granite is a superb building material. Tough, durable, it can have a rough or smooth finish, and comes in a variety of pretty colours. I think, however, before I start to talk about the actual mechanics behind the quarrying that took place at Tinnakili, and of course my nice visit to the site, Let's take a look at granite, its actual properties and formation. I personally find it really interesting. So granite is a coarse-grained crystalline rock made up mostly of two minerals called quartz, which is white or grey and sort of glassy looking, and feldspar, also white or pinkish, comprised of blocky shapes. Feldspar is really pretty actually, almost gem-like. It can also contain shiny black or pale mica. It is an intrusive rock, which basically means that it crystallised from magma that cooled far below the Earth's surface. And because this magma cooled slowly, it allows for larger crystal growth. Granite was first formed perhaps four to 500 million years ago and is the oldest igneous rock in the world. 
wow. The range of colours between various pieces of the stone is typically because of the difference in molten rock it was originally formed from. It is the most common igneous rock, and its name originates from the Latin word granum, or grain, which makes sense. Granite is of course very grainy, and rough despite being pretty. The backbone of the Wicklow Mountains is dominated by Leinster granite, which was formed following the collision of two continents around 445 million years ago, so not too long ago then. Large areas of molten rock were pushed upwards into the surrounding mud and sandstone rocks of the Earth's upper crust. Despite the slabs of granite we know and love today being generally darker in colour, the Wicklow rock tends to be much lighter, and that's one of the reasons why it has been so desirable in years gone by. I'm going to be really geeky now, but hey, who doesn't enjoy being a geek sometimes? I think most of the granite at Ockram is actually granodiorite, which is a granitic rock, but not quite the same thing. It contains more calcium and sodium, which gives it that light colour. I'm not a geologist, but the sample I took home, oh my god, what am I saying? The sample I took home, the rock I picked up, matches the pictures and description given online. Not granite, shock horror. Okay, I'm splitting hairs. Before I share with you my little adventure exploring the Tinnakili Quarry, I would just like to point out that it is on private land. So please get permission from the local landowner before you even consider going up there for a walk. Just a bit of friendly advice. Please keep dogs on leads. I hate to have to bring it up, but it just wouldn't be fair to let a dog roam wild on somebody else's property. There is a right of way for walkers, but even so. This is also an industrial site. It might look innocuous, but it was very overgrown when I visited. Who knows what might be lurking under the bracken. Uneven grounds, rusty equipment, you know, you get the idea. Dogs on leads. The site consists of two abandoned quarries cut into the western side of the hill. A large upper quarry with an extensive quarry face and a smaller lower site that is partly flooded and extensively overgrown. You can't get down to the pool, the entire quarry is filled with brambles. I hate brambles, they are literally the work of the devil. But there are some lovely young trees to see, willow and a hawthorn tree covered in bright red berries, a sign that a cold winter is heading our way apparently, well according to my trusty assistant on the day. There are some lovely rocks of varying types lying around which make for a sort of wild rockery nestled amongst the beautiful purple heather. The lower quarry site does have a sort of magical feel to it, like it's been made by some sort of mythical beings, fairies maybe, and yet it's not obvious it's a quarry. Why would you think that if you don't know the history of the area, and the way nature has just taken it back? The upper site, however, is much larger. You could probably park about four double-decker buses in it, end to end. Uh, I'm probably grossly underestimating there. It has a large stone quarry face with heather and ivy hanging down over it in places. The whole site has a sort of amphitheatre-like feel to it, very secluded and sheltered despite its size. The rock face is really cool, lichen docking the surface. I do like my lichen. <laughs> you can still see cut marks in the stone, or at least I think they are cut marks, so you can see how large the blocks were that they were removing. 
It's a shame that I couldn't walk right up to the surface and run my hand across it. Although the area is less overgrown than the lower quarry site, visiting in the autumn just meant that there was bracken everywhere. I didn't feel like beating it back with a stick. Probably better to visit the quarry in the winter, actually. Quarrying stone during the late 18th and early 19th centuries was very labour-intensive. Granite cut here would have been cut and shipped with the use of simple machines and animal power. Various workers were needed to extract the cut stone. A master mason would oversee the entire quarrying operation. Skilled workers, including stone cutters and stone carvers, who extracted and rough cut the stone into desired sizes. Blacksmiths were constantly needed to make and sharpen the cutting tools. Wedges, chisels, trimming hammers, sledgehammers, picks, mattocks, drills and axes, the list goes on. So first, all vegetation would be removed from the stone. Once the top was exposed, side channels or trenches were then picked into the stone face. A rear channel was used, picked into the stone to create a rectangular stone section and grooves were chiselled along the stone face where wedges were inserted to remove the block from the larger stone mass. Once a block of stone was cut, it was hoisted out with a simple derrick and pulley system. A skilled and time-consuming job, the blocks are just so huge. I can't say for sure whether these were the exact practices that took place in Tinakili, but they were standard quarrying procedures during the 19th century, so it seems unlikely that they weren't. There was one interesting invention, however, that I haven't mentioned yet that did transform quarrying during the 19th century and might have been used here, nitroglycerin. One way of extracting rock during the early 1800s was to use black powder, also known as gunpowder, and blast it out. The problem with black powder, it's not very efficient and really dirty. Think about all that smoke that muskets and cannons belch out. Nitroglycerin was discovered in 1846 by Italian scientist Ascanio Sobrero. It's smokeless and more powerful, but unfortunately, in liquid form, it's incredibly unstable. Spill a few drops or allow the mixture to get too warm and boom! Even Ascanio Sobrero was scarred for life trying to heat his new chemical in a test tube. It exploded and showered his face and hands with glass. Ouch. Swedish chemist-slash-businessman Alfred Nobel, yes, that's the same Alfred Nobel behind the Nobel Peace Prize, realised the potential that his new chemical had and sought to commercialise nitroglycerin as an explosive. For a while, nitroglycerin was sold as blasting oil and was used when mining or quarrying but was still considered too unstable by many, despite the obvious advantages that it has over black powder. On the 3rd of September, 1864, a shed used for the preparation of nitroglycerin exploded at Alfred Nobel's family armaments factory in Helenborg, Stockholm, Sweden, killing five people, including Nobel's younger brother Emil. Shocked by the accident, Nobel founded a new company, Invinterviken, so that he could continue to work in a more isolated area, and in 1867, he invented and patented dynamite. Dynamite is basically a cardboard tube filled with diatomaceous earth, 
I think I pronounced that correctly, saturated with nitroglycerin to varying concentrations, either 40 or 60%. Diatomaceous earth is a naturally occurring chalky powder consisting of the fossilized remains of diatoms, a type of hard-shelled microalgae. Put a blasting cap on a fuse on a stick of explosives and you can crack rock like never before. The whole point of mixing the nitroglycerin with this powder is that it makes it so much more stable to carry and transport, more resistant to heat too, although I still wouldn't start throwing them around. Personally, I'm not sure whether they actually use dynamite up at Tinakili. It's hard to know, it's just so overgrown, I didn't see any holes anywhere. I think it depends entirely, I think, on the variety of uses they had for the granite. I mean, blowing up rock just makes such a mess. Interestingly enough, I have a bit of a family tale I can tell regarding the use of dynamite. Gulp. <laughs> so, halfway up my lane, there is a huge granite boulder that is a pain to drive over, and my mother's uncle tried to split the rock with dynamite so he could dig it out. Where he got the dynamite from, I have no idea. Anyway, it didn't work and you can still see the hole that he drilled into the rock. Knowing what I know now about the use of dynamite from researching this podcast, I might know where he went wrong. So when clearing rock, you drop multiple sticks of dynamite down a long hole, so four foot plus, and when you drill your first hole, it's important that you drill another not too far away, so maybe four or five inches, and leave it empty. If you don't, the dynamite won't work, because the shock and gases have nowhere to escape to. Mom's uncle, or whoever tried to do it for him, didn't leave an empty hole. I can imagine their disappointment when the smoke cleared. We still have to drive over it, but it must have been worse with a horse and cart than in a car with modern suspension, so I think we'll leave it there. Interestingly, there are other ruins linked to the quarry in the local area. At McCredden Rock, there were open sheds for working on the granite in bad weather. The granite slabs were pulled up to the sheds from Tinakili by horses, one ton at a time, and were left where the entrance to the McCreddin Golf Club is now. An amazing golf course, by the way. I know I'm not supposed to be advertising anything on this podcast, and I don't work for them, I promise. I just had to say it. <laughs> the slabs were worked on here by stonemasons. It isn't clear to what extent they worked on the stones, but certainly Tinakili granite was used in construction around the local area as building blocks. They would be roughly shaped at McCreddin and then tailored to fit by stonemasons at actual building sites themselves. The stone was also used in the construction of walls and for more ornamental purposes as gravestones for example. Afterwards, the granite would be transported to the train station in nearby Ockram or were loaded onto lorries heading up to Dublin. Working on the granite was physically exhausting. It's so hard without power tools. Working on the rock for the first time must have been a baptism of fire. It must have been hellish. Even from personal experience, just working with a strimmer for a long time, the vibration from the engine will actually numb your hand. So imagine working on solid granite with a, a mallet and chisel all day. The sheds at McCreddin were open, but it still would have been dusty and masks often weren't worn. Once again, from personal experience, when hammering masonry nails, sparks often fly off. 
so I wouldn't dream of hammering them into stone or concrete without safety goggles. I wouldn't want to get a fiery fragment of metal in my eye. In the early 20th century, safety goggles were introduced, but the men wouldn't wear them. They used gauze, not glass, and so visibility was poor. They also caused the men to sweat profusely. Finally, it's time for me to leave Tinakili. The view from the quarry is absolutely beautiful. You are right on top of a hill and can see out across the Wicklow Mountains. Especially iconic is Mount Croc and Moira, its pointy conical summit covered in heather. You forget sometimes how high you are travelling through Ockram. To the east you can see the sea nestled between the hills, a glittering jewel on the horizon. The village of Ockram is laid out below me. You can see the football field and the church. Amazing how small the village is, really. Fortunately, the day I visited, I saw the most amazing rainbow, the cherry on the cake. For a complete 360-degree view, climb to the top of the hill where a local monument, a huge cross lit up at night, stands. Erected in the 1950s, it's a comforting beacon to welcome you home, driving back to Ockram over the years. I wish I had more information specifically about the quarry at Tinakili, and I would love to learn more. So if anybody does have any info for me, or perhaps family tales they can share, please don't hesitate to get in touch. That brings to an end my second podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. This podcast was produced and edited by me, Patrick Walsh. I also provided the musical score, took care of mixing and so on. But shout out to Pixabay Sounds and Sound Bible, Mike Koenig and so on, for all the stock sound effects.